complex things have simple names that everybody knows. A rocket. I'm, I'm very well versed on rockets now after uh, listening to that book. I'm not well versed. But you know the, the rockets from the cartoons? You know, like uh, Bugs Bunny flies or, or Marvin the Martian flies his rockets or wherever. They're like 90 feet tall, yeah, and they got a long, 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 long ladder that you got to go down. Neil Armstrong going down a ladder that long to land on the moon. And in fact, to fly something like that to the moon, the entire thing, you know, like we, our rockets are in stages. They go up in stages, and that's what uses far less fuel and saves a ton of money. Uh, it would actually cost an enormous amount of money to fly such a thing to the moon. But, you know, we look at a rocket, we just see a rocket. We think that's fine. Uh, an electrical engine. I, I watched a video some time ago and I was interested in how, you know, Tesla's kind of work. You know, like, well, it's just a bunch of batteries and some wires, right? And it makes the wheels run. Uh, way complex. DNA. Everybody knows what DNA is. So complex. These things are complex and they don't fit the definitions that we want all the time. Now, we want things simple, and they're not always simple. We get frustrated when they're not. Define God. Just, you know, write down, all right, define God. Write down in one sentence, what is God? I mean, it's impossible. Well, it turns out that God's agape love defies our simple definitions. And uh, so far, we've been emphasizing a part of it, a very important part of it, and today we're going to look into another part. Uh, it's a part of agape that seems at times contradictory to what we see, uh, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 13 or in God's love of the world in the Gospels. Uh, and so that is going to be our love of God, our love of one another, and God's love of us, meaning the royal family, not just the whole world, but his own children. And there's a bit of a difference there. And it shows us, uh, as we'll see today, that love is certainly the greatest of all things. So we're going to begin in the Gospel of John. Yeah, John chapter 10. And let's open up in prayer. Let's thank God for our opportunity to learn of his word, to learn of his love as he has so graciously recorded it for us, preserved it for us. All the truth that we need is in his word. That's the sufficiency of the scripture inspired by God. And if we're humble and reverent, we will learn it. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for you and your son, thank you for the gift of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's because you so loved the world that you sent your son, and we are the recipients of that great blessing of your love. You did not leave us uh, to our own demise, but you delivered us. You intervened in this world through Christ, through the cross, and in his resurrection. Father, you revealed to the world that you have accomplished through your grace the overcoming of death and the gift of eternal life, which is given to the sinner. So you have overcome sin. You have overcome all things that are barriers between us and you. You have done this. We have not. And so we thank you, Father, as a recipients of your grace, and we, as your children, long to live in your love. And so we ask for more guidance and insight today and through your spirit. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So there's a difference in the way that Paul and John present agape. Uh, it's, not, it's not an incredibly like it's a different thing. It's not a different concept or anything like that. But they emphasize different aspects. The fact that what John says about agape is actually more of the obvious kind than Paul does. And so we kind of miss it. You know, we read the verses about God so loved the world. And then we read in John, 
also in 1 John that we're not to love the world. And we say, well, of course, we see a contradiction. If we just were, you know, I guess superficial readers of the word, we would see a contradiction there. Um, the fact that a love of our enemies is, you know, unconditional and that we don't, you know, it doesn't matter who the object is, right? That's, that's what we emphasize, what Paul fully emphasizes, is that love is spontaneous. It doesn't calculate. It doesn't matter who the subject is. But then we see in John the love of the brethren. And the brethren are different from the rest of the people. And therefore, in that case, does it matter who the subject is? Or, sorry, the object. And, uh, <coughs> you know, like I said, when it comes to defining complex things, we want things simple. We want, them, we want our definition and we want it now, right? We want, we want our definition. We want it simple. We want it streamlined. And we want it to always apply. And, you know, that's kind of a pride thing, I think, with us. All of us have it. But, <clears throat> you know, God is love. And his love is kind of going to defy a simple definition. You know, love, like defining God, would take volumes of paper. Uh, people, you know, have done it. You grab any systematic theology book, that's where it starts. A systematic theology book starts with theology proper, which is the theology of God. And uh, it's long. There's, there's a lot about that. And if God is love, there's going to be a lot about his love. And it's not going to be as simple, perhaps, as we may hope. And I find that a, a very comforting thing because... Uh, you know, I'll never, and you'll never be at the end of discovering it. You know, who of us are going to say, you know, I would know what love is. I got it. I got, you got all of it? Oh, yeah, I got all of it. I know every part of it. Don't need to learn any more about that. And that would be ridiculous. We all know that. So when we study agape love, could we miss something? Um, it's a guarantee that we will. Because none of us have all knowledge. You know, as I was delving deeper into John's use of agape, I'm like, wow, isn't that strange? <laughs> and, but over the years, I've grown fond of the strangeness of God's word. You know, as C.S. Lewis says, that Christianity is the one religion that has that strangeness to it, that all real things have. All real things are strange. Paul states the crazy aspect of agape. <laughs> the, cra the crazy aspect is love your enemies, do good to them. Right? It comes from the Sermon on the Mount, but this is what Paul emphasizes. And, you know, where did Paul, now, well, let's say, well, pause on Paul. Paul states the crazy aspect of agape almost exclusively. John emphasizes, now it's not that they don't talk, that John doesn't talk about the the, you know, the love of God for everybody and our love for everybody, which I, I call that the crazy love. It's the love that the world didn't understand at all. Um, and it's not that John doesn't speak of that or write of that. And it's not that Paul doesn't write of, say, the love of the brethren. He does. But where they emphasize, Paul fully emphasizes the love uh, that is boundless and, and spontaneous and uh, uncalculating, and lays its life down for its total enemy. Whereas John emphasizes the agape that we kind of expect. And I say the love that we kind of expect, which is the love of the brethren and sistren. It's the love in the royal family of God. And that's exclusive because not everybody's in the royal family of God. And you yourselves know, if you ever meet a believer, that, you know, someone you've never met before, you find out they're believers, you find out that they love the Word of God, you instantly have a connection. So one of the things I used to love about the, the uh, conferences that GBC used to have, and for a number of years there, there were many conferences, they were very uh, populated, you know, and... Uh, you know, you just you had an instant friendship and connection with people you never met before. 
because we both love the Lord. And, and it's that connection, there's a love there. And that cannot be the same love that is manifested to an unbeliever. And you just don't have that connection. So, does the Bible have a different word for the love of the brethren and the love of the enemy? No. Does the Bible have a different word for the love of the brethren, the love of the enemy, and the love of God? No. Does the Bible have a different word for God's love of the whole world and a particular love that kind of stands out for the believer and another particular love that kind of stands out, kind of, it does, that stands out for the believer who obeys him? No. They're all agape. Where's your definition now? Where's mine? Well, it just got a little longer. So when we say, well, oh, wow, there's, a love, there's an agape of God for those who obey him? Yeah. So, you know, that means you include that, but you don't throw out the rest. This is what we like to do, is get everything in these watertight compartments, and when we find out something that we didn't know before, we have a tendency to, you know, want to throw things out. No, you keep it all in there. Keep it all in there. I mean, that crazy place that you call a brain. Keep it all in there. Don't throw any out. I know, there's limited space. the same in mind. But keep it all in there. You have God, the Holy Spirit, is going to make sense of this. So how can all those things that I just said be different if agape never changes? But it's not that agape changed. It's that agape has different manifestations. Well, wait a minute. That depends on the object, right? If there's different manifestations, then agape is going to behave itself differently depending on the object. Well, you know, that's true to a certain extent. But agape, where object doesn't matter, is in agape itself. Meaning that, does God love the world, the believer, how about the, God's love for his own son, Jesus Christ? Wouldn't you think that's kind of exclusive? It says that they loved one another before the foundation of the world. Who else has loved like that? Nobody. The love of the Trinity, one for another. Same word is used, the same agape. Their love for one another, I would think, would be somewhat exclusive. But it's not like love isn't for us. So agape shows itself to all regardless. In that, the object doesn't matter. But it's manifestation. Say you're in a room full of believers whom you love. Like truly, it's like a room full of believers who all get it, who all love the Lord, and there's no personality conflicts. Which there shouldn't be in a room full of believers ever. But I'm a realist. <laughs> I know, I know that there are personality conflicts. But say, say a room full of believers where all have somewhat matured in love, so therefore there's no personality conflicts. Is that a different experience for you or a different manifestation of your love than say you are stuck in a room full of your enemies? But of course there would be. And the manifest, manifestation of your love to God is different. It has its differences. And agape is used for them all. So agape, though, asks what the object needs. Right? We support uh, as a bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Never fails. Love is patient. Patient of who? Everybody. Does God need our patience? I certainly hope not. God wants our patience waiting on him, but he, we don't need to be patient with him, although we need to be more so, in a way, I guess we do. We are patient with him, but it's not like he needs it. Uh, God doesn't need our kindness, but yet agape is used of our love for him. And so we ask, what does the object need? For an unbeliever now, what does the object need? There's one thing an unbeliever needs is belief in the gospel. There's nothing else important. And so our love to them 
is manifested in our doing for them, our shining forth the light of the gospel, our service of them, our giving them the gospel, our serving them and showing them the gospel. Jesus said our love for each other would be a manifestation to the world that we're his disciples. And you see, that's exclusive. In the royal family, there's a special love, a special connection, a unity that in love, that love of the brethren will manifest the gospel to the world. And so what does the unbeliever need? The gospel. And I need to be a living gospel and a speaking gospel. What does God need? Nothing. Does he need anything from us? Absolutely not. So, our love of God, we say, what does the object need? Well, he doesn't need anything. So, how does our love to God manifest itself? It's a great question. And it's a question you should not say, Pastor, tell me what the answer to that is, which I, I can help as best as I can. But I'm still searching for it, too. We're all searching for the answer to that. And there's only one place we're going to find that answer. It's in the Word of God. And then agape loves all, you know. How about our love for the brethren? What do the brethren need? That's a day where it depends on the brother or sister. But, you know, what does God want from us in our relationship with one another? And that's manifested in the Scripture. And you'd, it, wouldn't, it would take more than one word to describe it. We're to work together. We're to be unified. We're to serve one another. We're part of the body of Christ. We're to be, we are perfectly fitted. We're to use our spiritual gifts to build up one another. Right? We're to consider one another as more important than ourselves. But yet, we are also brothers and sisters in an eternal family. We each have God's name. So, the agape definitely includes an affection for something that is beautiful. You know, and it's, of course, not every believer is worthy of affection, <laughs> but in fact that they are, because every believer possesses the righteousness of God. Every believer is in the body of Christ. Every believer is your brother or sister for eternity. And therefore, there's something, you know, what God has made of them is something beautiful. So while the object of agape will not initiate, my agape towards them, unbeliever, believer, close believer, husband or wife, God himself. The object is not initiated, except with God, I should say, because we, we love because God first loved us. But agape, what agape does and what affections and praises it has will depend on the object. I praise God. I can also rejoice with you. I worship God. I do not worship anything else, anyone else. And so our, our manifestation will depend on the object. What we praise, our affections. You don't really have an affection for the enemy, but you do. But it's different. Your affection for the enemy is... Well, that's a child of that's a a creation of God. That's God's creature. God is created. That's a fellow human being that has the potential, you know, love hopes all things. That has the potential to believe the gospel and become and enjoy the blessings that I enjoy. So, in fact, I have an affection for that soul, but it's not the same affection that I have for a fellow believer. Nor is that the same affection that I have for God. There is an affection there. And hence, agape is definitely personal. Now, there's the instance where you have to separate from people. You know, we're, we're told by John, do not love the world nor the things of the world. He uses agape there. And so, at and there are times when I have to separate from the things of the world. There are things that are dangerous for me. Some addictive things. There are some people that are dangerous for me. And I separate from them. And it doesn't mean I don't agape them. But to that, my affection is different. And so we have to be wise. You know, agape is 
you know, faith, faith in what God tells us makes us wise. As we apply that faith, we get wiser. And faith leads to hope, which leads to love. So God cannot be pinned down by some neat, streamlined definition. Go to John 10. This means that we're always learning. It's a good thing. Yeah, and if if after this class you you know you leave it with more questions than you, you want, well, I, I would also say that's a good thing. Because if you want to search out questions, you search them out. Where you find your answers are going to be with God in His Word. And of course, I can help with that, but I don't have them all. John ten seventeen, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. So here we have the... So some will say, well, it's the humanity of Christ. Well, sure, okay. but And it is, because only the humanity of Christ could lay down his life. Although 2 Corinthians 5 said that it was God up there on the cross reconciling the world to himself which throws a wrench in that, a wrench that I'm not willing to uh, try to unravel. It's way over my head. But um, notice that there's a reason that the Father loves the Son. Right? So is this like an unconditional thing? No. It's the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Wait, didn't the Father love him before he does that? Well, of course. And we could say, well, Jesus was always willing to lay down his life, which is true. It is very true. So the Father loves the Son because the Son is willing to do something. Well, I mean, true? Yeah. It says it here, right? But in fact, also, it's, you know, there's things your mind could really run with this and say, well, uh, all right. So, you know, this is, Jesus is a type. He's the Son of God. He's always willing to do this. But definitely, you know, and, and there's, uh, we could run circles around this and probably say both are true. That it's not conditional and it is conditional. But it's definitely different. Is this the same agape that God has for the world? Who does zero? Like the world, the world does nothing, merits nothing, all completely depraved enemies of God and ungodly, ungodly sinners. No, they are not the same. And then we have uh, God's agape based on the believer's obedience. That's a tricky one. Go to John fourteen twenty one. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. Now, what makes sense is that if you love God, you're going to keep his commands. This is stated multiple times in the Scripture. It's also an Old Testament concept as well. You know, love the Lord uh, the love of the Lord in the Old Testament is definitely the listening to the Lord and obeying the Lord. Uh, but here we have the fact that if you um, keep the commandments, meaning you love the you love the Lord Jesus Christ, then he says, "He who loves me will be loved by my Father." All in every case, it's agape in every use of the word here of the word love. Now, it's true that, the, I mean, the Father loves the flesh. What about the carnal believer, the fleshly believer? Does that mean God doesn't love him? No. God so loves the world. Does God love the unbeliever? Of course. But this is something different. And, you know, how it's different, do we want to define it? Yeah, I, I would stay away from that. You can, you can give it a shot. Try and organize these into nice, neat definitions. But you know what I t- what I tend to do is to uh, first off not ignore them because it don't fit 
with what I think it should. And secondly, just take the general and simple truth that comes from this lesson. And, you know, all truths are lessons. They're lessons for us to learn so that we can progress to a place where we can thoroughly enjoy a blessed life with God. And that is the fact that what is clearly here is that I need to keep the commandments. I need to obey. I mean, at base, that is, that is stated here as a fact. I have to keep the commandments. If I do, I love him. So what comes first? And people do, we'll see this coming up also that, you know, I'm not going to do anything until I love him. And it's the way of the flesh uh, keeping us lazy and not doing anything. Like I'm going to wait for maturity. I'm going to wait till I love him and then I'll think about doing stuff. But in fact, we're told to obey when we don't want to. We're told to obey when we don't feel like it. Uh, and by doing that, you say, well, if I'm following the Lord even when I don't feel like it, that is a manifestation of love. Just like I'll do for someone else. If I love you and I don't feel like doing things for you, but I do them, it means that's a manifestation of love. I don't put myself ahead of you. And I don't put myself ahead of the Lord, so I obey him. As soon as you hear the command, you are responsible for it. Same with all of us. And therefore, that love, if we love him, that goes hand in hand with keeping his commandments. The more you obey and submit, the more your love will progress, the more your love will mature. And that's what's here. Now, there's a benefit here. As you skip down to verse 23, he repeats the same thing again and then says, I and my Father will build our home with you, which is like my favorite blessing that I, that I, long, that I like to think about lately. Every time I think of disobeying God and I'm tempted by sin, John 14:23 knocks me out of it. Not always. I'm not sinless. But for, it, it works marvelously. I said, do I want to walk in a home that the Father and the Son have built for me? Yeah. That sounds a whole lot better than this sin that I might commit. It's just motivation to say no. The benefits are huge. And it really boils down. What it really comes to here is your presence, is your living in the presence of God. It's not so much what you do. It's everybody's so concerned with what they're going to do and they're going to do. And we have a lot to do. But, I mean, in essence, the spiritual life, does God need us to do stuff? He doesn't need us to do stuff. He's given us stuff to do. He doesn't need us to do it. It's really a life in His presence. It's a place where, you, where you're at, where I am in the presence of the Lord. No matter what. I mean, what was the promised land for the Israelites? The presence of God. That He was with us. Part, the promise of the new covenant. I will walk amongst you. So, well, but God's omnipresent. Of course He's always walking amongst us. He's, he's here all the time. What he meant was that my that your uh, consciousness would realize that no matter where you are, from the day, moment you wake up to the moment your head hits the pillow, that you are in the presence of the loving and gracious and powerful and fearful Lord. And then you will do. Uh, then there's where I have First Peter, one twenty-two. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. I think we were there yesterday. Uh, and this, uh, go to First John chapter three. First John chapter three. As now we have the agape. For the brethren. Now, if you look at this verse, it's, you know, this, this doesn't have the same feel as 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient, love is kind. Uh, but, it, I mean, it, <clears throat> it doesn't have the same feel, certainly, as love for your enemies. But it has a, a depth to it, 
uh, warmth to it, a sincere love of the brethren. And again, we have the word obedience, that we obey. This is so important. We can't get around this. If we're going to love as God wants us to love and therefore experience eternal life the way it needs to be experienced, we have to be obedient. You just can't get around that. And we we all struggle with it. There's, There's nobody who doesn't. But God is... God is the one who's leading you there. I, I can't get my... I'm using the Exodus all the time now as my example. Even in my own heart, my, my writing that I'm doing, I'm using the Exodus always as an example because that journey from Egypt to the Promised Land is wrought with testing. It's test after test after test. Uh, we focus on their failures, which they had so many of. But <coughs> more so I've been focusing on the fact that it's a test and that... You and I should be in the promised land in an expedient manner. Right? Not fiddling around in the wilderness trying to compromise God's plan. When are we going to get obedient? And God's plan, this wilderness journey that you're on, is all designed for that. To show you Him so you see Him so clearly in His power and His glory and His majesty that you say to yourself, I have to obey Him. That it becomes a will in you. And that, you can't will it yourself. So when someone's struggling with obedience, you have to keep searching the Lord. And pray for it. It's one of the... Uh, you know, it was absolutely terrible after I prayed it, but <laughs> see, what I, I said, God, I am not seeing, this is very sincere prayer. You know, sometimes you're praying to God, and He knows your mind, you're praying to Him, God, I want you to do this, but secretly you're saying, not right now. God, I want you to do this, but not today, you know, not yet. He, he's, he reads those thoughts, and He follows them. You get what you ask for. If you ask for God to delay, He delays. But when you say don't delay, and you know in your heart, you say this is not a sincerity thing, it's a faith thing. You say, God, and that's what I did. I said, God, I need you to show me yourself because I'm not seeing you clear enough. And holy moly, did he do some things in my life. That was a few years ago. Some painful things, too. Stuff that I didn't want. Yeah, stuff that later on I said, can we slow this down? How about I don't see this much of you? You know, it's painful. It was hard. But yeah, you know, that that's what the wilderness is. The wilderness isn't easy. The trials, the tests, that's what they're called trials. They're not easy. But as James writes, James 1, 2 through 4, that we should rejoice in the various trials that God has given to us because they, they, uh, our faith in those trials produce endurance. And endurance matures us. So we see obedience here, and the obedience, again, is for a purified soul that loves the brethren. The emphasis is on the brethren, not on the whole world. And that we fervently love one another from the heart. So we have the agape of the Father for the Son and the believer for the believer. Is this the same agape for the unbeliever? And of course it is. So look at for uh, our agape love for one another in the family of God is one of warmth. It's one of depth, not death. <laughs> depth and it's one of intimacy. The relationship in the royal family has no parallel anywhere else. I have pity for people who don't have it. I've had it for years. My dearest friends, for years. Because at least I I had the blessing of being in a fairly large local assembly at Grace Bible Church for years. And um, that was a fellowship. And they're lifelong friends that came from that, that I consider my closest brothers and sisters. Uh, And the same here. We have a unity. We have you know, people have visited here that have come from bigger churches, and they've they've told me I kind of envy what you have here. 
you know, every pastor longs for numbers. I don't know what it is. It's just this thing in the back of my head that I, 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 I don't do it near as much as I used. But I used to count every Sunday. I'd be like, one, two, three, four. You know, and if I'd be over 20, I'd be like, oh, yeah, you know. The heck does that matter? I don't really do it much anymore. I definitely don't count on the weekdays. No need. It's too many. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, what do we have? It's rare. You know, I, people in my family, I talk to people in my family, they still, even in a family, in my family, because people don't know the Lord. They don't know the Lord, and therefore they don't have that connection with one another. They're all family, brothers, sisters, aunts, nieces, uncles, and all that, but eh, are they unified like we are? It's not even close. Let's give it a moment. I, I just found out my niece isn't talking to my brother still. It's going on for like five years now. They haven't talked to each other. Like for and it's the stupidest reason. Because they don't know the Lord, right? They don't have that. So look at 1 John 3.13. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. You know that we have passed out of death into life because we love. Now notice John's emphasis here. Not the world, but the brethren. He is particular about that. All through this letter. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for, John's emphasis, the brethren. Now, this is a warmth, an intimacy, a depth to this, something that the world doesn't know that we get to enjoy. So that, but it is the word agape, right? So the manifestation of agape here is slightly different. Actually, quite different. Uh, yet, our desire and our hope for the unbeliever is to become a part of the flock. And so, we do have a, we have a love for the unbeliever that is manifested differently. But yet, the desire for them to be a part of, uh, you know, to have eternal life is our true purpose for them, our desire for them. And hence, you can see, so agape being God's love, right? What is agape? God's love. And God's love manifested for the Holy Spirit, for the Son of God, for Jesus in the Incarnation, for the believer in his own family, for the believer that obeys him in his own family, and for the unbeliever throughout the world. There's a manifestation that is, it varies. And therefore the object does come into play. Now one commentator that I, I read um, made the case, and, and it's really neat to think about this, that, uh, you know, how did Paul become a believer? Right? We know this story on the road to Damascus. Has anybody ever become a believer like that? Right? Paul, on his way to murder Christians, right? He's got warrants of arrest in his back, if he had a back pocket, in his satchel or wherever he had. He's got warrants of arrest to bring to Damascus, to take Christians back to Jerusalem, to throw them in prison. Women and children, too. Doesn't matter. He doesn't care. All he wants to do is destroy Christianity. And by the time he gets to Damascus, he's a blind as a bat, but he's a believer. And, uh, you know, so as this writer said, Paul came into the Christian life through kind of a side door. Didn't he? And I really like that image. It's like, all right, Paul, you're the worst sinner I ever lived. Come on in, and I'm going to make you my greatest servant. You're not coming in the front door. No. <coughs> right? It's like, like the worst sinner I ever lived. You're going to let him in the back door. Make sure nobody sees him. So uh, Paul, his beginning in Christianity is from the lowest pit of life, as he comes to find out. Greatest sinner ever lived, so he says. And then you have John. John was a disciple of John the Baptist and was with Christ from the beginning. Right? John is John's one of the first. 
And he's with the brethren, he's with the disciples, he's with the twelve, and for years from the beginning of Christ's ministry. And, you know, some have speculated that's why Paul and John have different emphasis. But as we know, God is sovereign. So God is going to use different people and different gifts. They're both apostles, but the manifestation of their apostleship is different, just like the manifestation of all spiritual gifts are different. And their emphasis when it comes to agape love is different. John definitely emphasizes the love in the royal family. And Paul sent to pagans. Where's John sent? John remains basically in Jerusalem, and then he he's, is he finishes his ministry uh, somewhere around Ephesus, that area in um, Western Asia. But where you know where's Paul sent? Paul sent to the to the Gentiles, full of pagans. And you know, as Paul teaches agape, it's going to have its different emphasis. So now. When it comes to love in the Old Testament, which we haven't spent a whole lot of time speaking about, but I, I think it, it's not particularly necessary because, not, not that it's not necessary, don't get me wrong, but I think it flows quite easily into our understanding that we have love in the Old Testament, which is the love of the Father or the love of God in the Shema and uh, the love of your neighbor. So we have a dual aspect to love in the Old Testament, which is love of God and love of neighbor. Uh, in the New Testament, the love of neighbor far is overemphasized than the love of God. Our love to the Father is hardly mentioned at all in the New Testament. It's mentioned more in the Gospels. But in the writings of the New Testament, it's not hardly there, which we scratch our heads about. Um, but it is here in John. So, uh, not yet, not yet. So, when it, you know, if all of a sudden we move into, because in the Old Testament, love of God is emphasized. It's, it's the, and Jesus said it, it's the greatest command. And the second one is like it. So he puts the love of neighbor as number two. But you move into the, even in John's God, First uh, John, uh, in John's epistle, he doesn't really write hardly at all about our love of God. And so we wonder, why is that? And I personally, I think it's because our love for God as believers. You know, as believers, we understand that God sent his son to us and that his son died on a cross for us and that he took upon himself the most horrible of horrible suffering to save us and we're saved because of him. And that because of that, you know, how could we not love God in return for what he's done for us? And I personally think, and again personally, that our love for God is almost taken as a given. It's not that it's not there. It's just not frequent. However, what is super frequent over and over and over in the writers of the New Testament is our faith. Our faith in God. It's mentioned copious times. And that's what's emphasized is our faith in God and that leads to our obedience, right? We've already read it like three times that we need to obey. So, and this and I can almost see and again this is kind of, it is a personal opinion that if love of God was so written so much in the New Testament that I could see believers just kind of sitting at home doing nothing. and I, I mean, home, wherever you're sitting. <laughs> Being in isolation, not caring, to, and saying, look, I love God. I love God. Well, we all love God. I don't, I don't understand how there's a believer who knows why they're saved. And I would say that's all believers. I don't think you can be a believer if you don't know that. Uh, but... Um, who really knows that Jesus died for them on a cross and you don't love him for that? Like, could you be a believer in Christ and be like, eh, this is all right what he did? Could you be a believer in Christ and say, yeah, God, he's, he's all right, you know. I'm, yeah, there's got to be some level of love there. There has to be. I'm not saying all believers love the Lord as much as every other believer. I'm not saying that. But, 
what is emphasized is our faith, and faith is believing the commandments, right? So can I sit in isolation and say, I love God, but I don't do squat in the plan of God? Uh, no. Right? The new, if you are reading or learning the New Testament, you can't get away with that. Right? It's like Christ when he finished the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you hear these things and do them, then you're a house built upon a rock. You hear these things and don't do them, then your house built upon the sand. So, do them. Or, it's a waste of your time. And it's a beautiful wrap-up to the Sermon on the Mount because no one can walk away from the Sermon on the Mount or read the Sermon on the Mount and say, you know, I thought that was pretty good. You know, or I like this part and I didn't like that part. You don't get the chance or the choice to just critique it. It's either do it or don't do it. And the same is true of our relationship with God. It's either we follow him in faith and do what he tells us or we don't. It's either we commit our lives to him or we don't. And I, and I, and I love the fact that God so bluntly makes it that simple. Because we're so good at self-deception and trying to, you know, make ourselves feel like we're spiritual when we're not. And we can waste decades in that place. And all we're doing, running around in circles in the wilderness. Not learning to think. Keep disobeying, keep falling, keep disobeying, keep falling, keep getting bitten by serpents, keep falling. And I'm, I'm getting nowhere. Where's the promised land? You're going to die out there. So, First uh, John 4, 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And again, beloved means the royal family, the believers. <clears throat> so, uh, love to God in John's wonderful exposition of love here, which is in 1 John 3. Uh, about half, starting a few lines into three, all of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five is all about agape love. And what is emphasized? God's love for us and our love for others. But it's not that the love of, our, our, of God for us is not here. Look at 419, 1 John 4:19. It says, we love famously, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So we see the love of God here, agape. It's not, it's not another word. It's not phileo. It's agape. And yet the, the emphasis is on if you love him, then you need to be loving your brethren. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever loves the Father, and, and actually the word Father isn't there. It's literally the one who begot, but that's okay. All the translations put Father. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. Right? There's obedience again. And this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Obedience again. And his commandments are not burdensome. Obedience with hope. <laughs> and that, that's when they're not burdensome, is when I look to the future and I say, you know, I don't know how this is going to work out, but it's going to work out great. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Such beautiful passages. You almost wish you could just slow down and chew them up a little deeper. But we have the love of God here. Right in those two passages, but it's actually really the manifestation of our love for others. But the others are in John, in First John, are always the brethren, and that's what's emphasized here. So the New Testament emphasizes faith towards God, 
And that makes sense because if you are following him, you're going to love him. I think if you're a believer, you love him. But as you follow him, your love of him will grow. That is for sure. Love does mature. Um, And so the New Testament emphasizes faith towards God and love towards others. And that is manifested differently in love of believers and love of unbelievers. Uh, faith means obedience here. Keep the commands. Jesus said it in the upper room a bunch of times. You love me, you keep my commands. You love me, you keep my commands. What do you say to Peter at the end of the Gospel of John? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Yeah. And he said, teach my lambs. Right? Keep my commands. Do what I want you to do. So, uh, in the Old Testament, well, let's, for the sake of time, skip that. Go to 1 John 3.19. So, um, you know, now this love, maybe if we, you know, if we stopped here, we might leave thinking that John has been teaching us an agape that's kind of like a warm, mushy feeling uh, in the royal family, right? We love one another. And that's true. We do. Uh, there's an affection for another believer. Right? There's things that we share that are wonderful. And that brings an affection. What you have within you is beautiful. I, not all believers see it. That's the problem. That's why believers are absolute, absolute believers can be at each other's throats because they're ignorant and unfaithful. And they don't understand what is in that other person. They don't understand love the love of God that must manifest itself in being a servant of another and not um, lording it over, which as the scripture states. Uh, so, <clears throat> but John here, look at 1 John 3.19. We will know by this that we are of the truth. Know by what? So we have to go back to verse 16, which is the passage I skipped for time. How about that? We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Hence, brethren again is emphasized. We lay down our lives for them. Is it easier to lay down your life for another believer than it is for your enemy who's an unbeliever who hates your guts? Of course it is. We have to do both. So we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue. Let love be without hypocrisy, is what that is saying, just by word. It's not lip service. Little children, let us love with word or with tongue. Or let us not love with word or with tongue but in deed and truth, in work and in truth. Now, this becomes a problem if you don't want to do this. And so what a lot of people have done is they've, Christians I mean, when I say I shouldn't say a lot, I know some who have, uh, instead of, notice that it says, um, if we see, where is it? It sees his brother in need. Well, what if I just isolate myself and I don't see my brother at all? Wouldn't that solve the problem? You have to actually see somebody to see them in need, right? But what if I cut myself off and isolate myself and then I don't see anything? And I say, what? Problem solved. What do I do? Sit in my little cubicle, my little house, whatever? I got my computer, I got my tape player, I got my pastor on screen. And I am loving the Lord. I don't doubt those people love the Lord. I don't. But they're missing a huge part of Christianity. But it's easy to do. It's easy to make me, my church, my relationship with the Lord, this device and just me and Him all alone. What's your spiritual gift? It don't matter. I don't see any people. I do see them, but, you know, at the supermarket or 
driving by in the car at 50 miles an hour. I don't know. I can't, I'm going to do nothing for it. I'm not involved in anybody's life at all. I'm not involved in a church. I'm not involved in anybody's life. I am serving zero. And, you know, I can't say that I'm not serving anybody because I don't see them. If you don't see your brother, you don't see his need. Problem solved. Uh, so what if there is a problem there? Look, we all tend to do this. It's not like any of us are immune from the fact that is, is there a way, we almost do it subconsciously, is there a way that I could get around doing this whole sacrifice for people I don't like thing or for anybody thing? Note, look at verse 19. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. That word assure, a pytho, it means to persuade. And we will persuade or assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. Now just pause there. A New American Standard puts a semicolon there. If and I have to I'm out of time really here, so I have to summarize for you fairly quickly. And uh, if you want more proof you can contact me. But you know, what this verse is more literally saying is before him, before God we will persuade our heart that if our heart condemns us, if it does, which would be what in the context? Well, he just said, if you see your brother in need, don't just say you're going to do stuff. Do it. Right? Don't close your heart against them. Whatever the need is, do so. Fulfill that need. But if I hear this truth, and before him, that's important, because if I'm not before him, I don't care, I'll look about this, but if I'm before him, and our heart is persuaded, and our heart is condemned, and why would it be condemned? Notice he says next, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So isn't that interesting? The only one who can judge our heart is the one who is greater than our heart. That makes sense, because the judge should be greater than the one who is judged. He judges our heart and he knows all things. So he knows what's going on in that heart. And what is the word of God, which is alive and powerful? What does it do? It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so God judges us here. And if we're condemned, once we do that, if we analyze this verse about ourselves, say in prayer, we take it to heart in humility and we say to ourselves, well, you know what? I don't do this. Or I'm guilty of not doing this. Agape thing. Emphasis with John to the brethren. Then what should I do? Change. Let's sit around waiting. You know, a great many Israelites died in the wilderness. And there was no need for that. They all should have been in there. All those people that the ten spies were deathly afraid of and convinced the rest of Israel to be afraid of were wiped out by Joshua and his inferior army because God was with them. Just like the two spies said, God is with us. He's going to give us the land. If he's pleased with us, we're going to have this land. The promised land for us is this place of mature love. And today we saw this mature love in the royal family. And so finally, there's much more to this. I don't know why I thought I could fit this in an hour, but I always think I can fit it in an hour. Agape love loves the world in the pursuit of its redemption. All right, same word, same love. But what do I want for the world? It's redemption. It's what God wants. I want people to believe I want people to know Christ. I want them to be blessed. Now, what about the brethren? The agape love of the brethren pursues fellowship. There's more to that. You know, it's our working together. It's our um, encouraging one another, praying for one another, supporting one another, serving one another. All of that actually does fall under the term fellowship. 
partners. Partners in the journey. If I need to bear you up, I will. Bear me up. Whatever it takes. I'm going to help you. And what do I want for you? Promised land. Every believer. What can I do? How can I do it? When should I do it? Love is patient. So when should I do it? Love is kind. I will show mercy and grace. In order to help you. And that's my fellowship with you. And then agape love of God. That's a tougher one. So what do you want from God? Oh, he's given me so much. But I still want more. <laughs> I do mean that. I mean that in a humble way. You should be one who would love to be blessed by God. But I, I boil it down to his presence. If you're going to use one word, which, you know, is tricky. But his presence is your absolute awareness of him on a you know almost every minute of every day that you're with him he's with you you walk with him you're empowered by him you're taught by him you're ready to shoot up that flare prayer at any time and so agape loves god in the pursuit of his presence what we are not to agape love is the world. But wait a minute. Don't they fall into that one, right? The world. We're to love. We do love them. But not the way of the world, not the things of the world. Well, that we don't love. We hate that. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for such grace that comes from you to us by means of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot here tonight, Father. We ask that through your Spirit that we could discern it and um, that we would, Father, uh, take your truth into our hearts and let it change us in the way that you would. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.